What a gift it is to take stock of the things that truly matter and to have a friend or companion who helps us to locate or relocate our soul's home when we feel lost or ready to be found. For it is through the life examined that we live our purpose and through the life examined that we find that our purpose, our soul's purpose, links us to one another in profound ways. We all know that this work is as old as the hills. So instead of quick fixes, we're highlighting the spiritual practices that shape us and sustain us personally and collectively. These practices are rooted in our traditions and in our shared experience of being human. Won't you join us? Today, more on contemplation and activism. Howard Thurman's image is centering down. The practice of uncovering our life, of unraveling and holding the threads of our own lived experiences, and finding that singular thread that is woven back to God's self. Or as Dr. King says, reflecting later on the same theme, we are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. We are a circle supporting one another, lifting up ourselves as part of the African diaspora, and also pushing back against what is called the lie of black inferiority. Today, we're back with part two of my conversation with author and spiritual director, Therese Taylor Stenson. Therese is a member of the Shalame Society for Contemplative Leadership. She is also the founding managing member of the Spiritual Directors of Color Network and the editor of the award-winning collection on the emancipative properties of holy listening. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. Together, we talk about her organization, the Spiritual Directors of Color Network, the balance between ego and selflessness, and spiritual direction as sacred activism. If you missed part one of our conversation, you can hop back over to the thread online. But if you're ready for part two, let's jump right in. When you evoke this story of Harriet Tubman falling into a trance in the woods in this time of flight and danger, it's just a very powerful image of leadership too. I can imagine the panic of those whom she was leading, those whom she was journeying with of get up, you're leading us and you're asleep all of a sudden. And we hear the wolves around us and the white people and that she had taken that moment. And if she hadn't, they might have continued into a direct who knows, we don't know, but it caused her and them therefore to change course. So they had the Underground Railroad helping them, people along the Underground Railroad. But think about it. She started at least in southern Maryland. Actually, sometimes she went further south. They were on a waterway, so sometimes she may have had a boat or something. But sometimes she had to take the way through the woods in order to avoid being seen or caught. And some people she took as far as Philadelphia first, and then they started looking for them in Philadelphia. So they went upstate New York, and then finally into Canada, where they would be legally free. And there's one story I put in the book that I really like a lot, about her taking some of her charges into Canada, and they're crossing over the bridge that crosses Niagara Falls. And she tells this one person that's with her, 
I think his name was John. John, look at the falls. Look at the falls. And John is scared to death. So John won't look at the falls. And then finally, they get to the other side of the bridge. And they're in Canada. And then she says, look, we're free. We're free. And John says, thank God. The next time I do this, I'll be going to heaven. Mm. And Harriet says, well, you could have looked at the falls before you went to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> so there's two really amazing networks that you are a part of and one that you've convened and co-founded that I want to talk a little bit about. And one of those, you've evoked the name of this practice. It's something that was founded by Enola Aird. The Emotional Emancipation Circle, of which you are a facilitator. And I'm wondering if you would talk a little bit about what emotional emancipation looks like and the practice of the circle itself and why it's important. The circles are circles with people of African descent. And I can't really say much about what happens in the circles other than sometimes we don't even know we're having a traumatic response. So one thing that we're looking at is our traumatic responses. We're being educated about what trauma is and what it looks like and what we can do to mitigate it. I don't know if we can completely get rid of it, but being aware of what is and how it functions helps you to have a more informed response if you find yourself in such situations. So that's one thing that we talk about, but we are a circle supporting one another lifting up ourselves as part of the African diaspora and also pushing back against what is called the lie of black inferiority. Mm. Enola mm -hmm. Aird is the founder of the Community Healing Network. And by the way, Maya Angelou was one of her original board members for the Community Healing Network. The Community Healing Network collaborates with the Association of Black Psychologists to put together these emotional emancipation circles to help people free themselves from the idea of black inferiority. Mm -hmm. And I do believe very deeply that once we find that internal freedom, we've won more than half of the battle. The trauma that we carry couldn't be an experience of something that has happened recently, but it also is an experience of something that is carried forward for hundreds and hundreds of years, as you said, you know, the, the trauma carried and felt and experienced and examined in these circles involves thinking about what ancestors experienced in the Middle Passage. There's a trauma gene, and I don't know if they've uncovered it in everyone, but I do know that they uncovered the trauma gene in the Jewish people. They uncovered it in Vietnam veterans, and they uncovered it in people of African descent whose ancestors came through the Middle Passage. You founded a network for spiritual directors of color called by the same name, Spiritual Directors of Color Network. And I'm curious if you would share for us, other than the obvious, this being a network for spiritual directors of color, what stands out to you that is different? What qualities are different about this network than a predominantly white association of spiritual directors. Exactly what you said. Actually, <laughs> when I was going through the spiritual guidance program, and I understand that unfortunately this is still the case, but there weren't even recommended readings, something that you didn't have to do, but just recommended 
there weren't even recommended readings for people of color. Christian spiritual direction started with the desert Amas and Abbas, mothers and fathers, and they were definitely people of color, so I know that, but it was not mentioned in that way, and I'm not sure that those who were teaching us actually were cognizant of that. Mm. There was no reference to any people of color, their traditions, or how they gave to the idea of contemplative spirituality. And so by the time we came to the end of the program, we had some options for things we could do. The course was broken up into themes, so we could write a final paper on themes like discernment or mysticism or something like that. Or we could pick one of the mystics that they lifted up, which were John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, Evelyn Underhill, The Cloud of Unknowing, and such. We could pick one of those and by the way, I loved the book, The Cloud of Unknowing, but we could pick one of those and write something about them or we could do a research paper. So I didn't have enough time to do a total research paper, but more of an exploratory paper of contemplation in the black community, spiritual direction in the black community, because none of those were on our syllabus nor recommended readings. Actually, there was a co-director at the time who was working on putting Thurman on the recommended reading list, but that hadn't happened yet. Mm. So anyway, I had to do my own work. I had to read 20 books on my own and extrapolate how this reflected on people of color. Books like Albert Rabateau's Slave Religion and Peter J. Paris on African Spirituality and Thea Bowman, who was a Catholic nun, She's actually up to become a saint now. She's going through the process. So I was reading about what she said about contemplative spirituality in black people. I interviewed like 12 people that I knew who were black and hopefully spiritual <laughs> and asked them about their experiences and what was meaningful to them. The main thing is that in white spirituality, there is an emphasis on silence and solitude. In black spirituality, there is an emphasis on emoting, storytelling, dancing, singing, and community, as we mentioned earlier. And so those are differences. And then there are things like trauma. And I know this directly from my work as a spiritual director, that there are some people that are uncomfortable with silence and they can't deal with it. They need somebody more than just a spiritual director for that. Maybe at some point they will be able to be silent, but that's not something to impose. Mm -hmm. The Spiritual Directors of Color Network was formed because there was one person of color in my cohort. And we started saying, where are we? We know we're not the only people of color who are having this experience. And then toward the end of the program, Spiritual Directors International had their educational event in Dulles, outside of D.C. And so we went to that event. People in the program come from all over the place, but we were near enough to D.C. to attend that event. And there we started gathering other people of color. I guess sometimes I'm a little slow because I was thinking, we're in D.C. in the United States, so I'm looking for African Americans. And somebody who ended up 
on our board of directors had to say to me, I'm from South Africa. <laughs> so then I realized Spiritual Directors International, <laughs> we're dealing with people from all over the world. <laughs> and so Spiritual Directors International, I haven't been there in a while, so I'm not sure if they're still doing things this way or not. But they used to have a networking luncheon on Sunday where you were invited to network with people that came from the same place you did or graduated from the same program. And so we decided to invite people of African descent to our table to network. And at this time, I was thinking about what would I be writing for a final paper. At this table, we were talking and we were actually surprised. Therese was surprised that there were more than just <laughs> African Americans at the table. There were people from Africa, different countries in Africa, not just South Africa. And there was a South Korean and people that were in the States from islands like Puerto Rico and such, Belize, sitting at the table and everybody around the table without any kind of prompt wondering where the people like them were. Hmm. So somebody said, we should write a book. And so, hmm, I'm already trying to write this paper, right? <laughs> so we said, that's a great idea. And I took the names and telephone numbers of those people around the table. I imagine everybody went home and just like you do about a lot of things, they said, well, that's the end of that, but not for me. I was in an African-American spiritual guidance peer group. And so I started telling them and my friends and my friends started telling their friends. And I started contacting the people that were around the table and we started meeting. We would have conference calls and they would come on the call and say, I feel like I'm in heaven. I just can't imagine that I'm having these calls. And so that was in 2008. And so for the first six years or so, that's how we met. We actually formed and edited and published our first book, Embodied Spirits. And one of the people that contributed to Embodied Spirits, we would have calls around the publishing of the book to make sure everybody was on the same page. And he said, this is the first organization I ever heard of that publishes a book before they even incorporate. <laughs> so we published a book and we published two more after that. But after publishing the book, we also incorporated. Mm. And I went through another program called The Soul of Leadership. And in that program, one of the books there was an exercise. You ask yourself questions about why you haven't done something. Mm. And they give you a process for what to do thereafter. And so I took that process, went home, and made a survey to ask people in the network if they would like to incorporate and so I predominantly got a yes answer. We incorporated in 2014. And so we've been in existence now for 13 or nearly 14 years. That's awesome. Is that where you heard the story that you told me yesterday of someone who had been at work in a larger white church, affluent church, had that experience of worship that illumined something? Oh, that was someone whom... I was seeing in spiritual direction and something had happened at the church and at some point everybody got into their kneelers in prayer mm -hmm. 
And he said that made him think that in the presence of the spirit, white people contract and black people expand. Because if you were in some black churches, not all of them, but a lot of black churches, you would hear them clapping or singing loudly or something like that. And in some denominations, they might be jumping up and down or whatever, but it's not mostly quiet. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You were very careful when you said that story, uh, you know, that this is not a universal experience. But I will say that the white congregations and um, worship that is populated by white people, we do take scriptural commands, clap your hands, all you people. Like that's metaphorical language for us. You know? <laughs> that resonates. Yes. And so you asked the question, why did I start this network? Because there was nothing that was out there. And I would say that this is still true to a large extent, except for the books we've written and a few that others have written now. And some people do use the books in some kind of way. Some people would just purchase them on their own. But there are no programs still where people are taught that there are other ways to approach contemplative spirituality that are not still in silence. Mm -hmm. I don't care if you're black or white or what color. If you're plaid. (laughs) If you have trauma, being in silence may not be the best way to approach that with some people. Our last book was edited by Anita Adesanya, who lives on the West Coast. I have a chapter in there with another Presbyterian, Reverend Dr. Paula Owens Parker, who is at Union Presbyterian Seminary. And we wrote a chapter entitled Internal Liberation, where my favorite person, Thurman, is lifted up in terms of how I believe in Jesus and the disinherited. He is trying to internally free us. I imagine that many of us listening to this conversation, we have either fears or aspirations tied up with what will become of our lives or what we'll do during Mary Oliver's words, our one wild and precious life. And you have a discussion or thoughts about the place of the ego in parts of our lives and the purpose that it serves for some more than others and the move away from the ego into the second phase of life, some of which is Richard War's language, but in your own meditations on this theme, you evoke that second phase of life that is a liberating image. You know, we need our egos, everybody. (laughs) If we didn't have our ego, we'd be in a mental institution. Mm. As one person I've heard sometimes somewhere say, That without our egos, we would totally be crazy. There's so much stuff coming at us, we wouldn't be able to function. And this does have a lot to do with emotional emancipation. We forget that we are also in charge of the ego. (laughs) So we don't have to let our ego determine every decision we make or action we make. And the less dependent we are upon others thinking well of us or lifting us up or our feeling that somehow we've met all the criteria to be a person when we let go of these things and we actually allow spirit to help us define ourselves and to move in the direction that God has given us to serve our larger community, to be like the rest of nature and provide for the planet, 
for life here on this planet. We have a part in that as well. We are part of nature, people. <laughs> we, are, <laughs> we are not separate in indigenous practices. God is not something that we directly connect with, but we come from. And so we are image bearers. And so we have our purpose and our place on this planet as image bearers to sustain life here. Amen. Therese, thank you so much for the blessing of being in your presence. Thank you for having me. This was fun. (laughs) Friends, we'll be back next week with a new episode of New Way. In the meantime, you can pre-order Therese's new book, Walking the Way of Harriet Tubman, Public Mystic and Freedom Fighter, published by 1517 Media. It comes out next summer, so you'll have something really special to look forward to if you order ahead. And if you'd like to explore spiritual direction for yourself, you can visit the online resources of the Spiritual Directors of Color Network at sdcnetwork.org. Stay tuned for our upcoming episodes of Season 8 of New Way. We're exploring contemplation, silence, neighborliness, the importance of trying new things, and more with our awesome lineup of guests. Whether you're listening along with a group or prefer to keep these amazing episodes all to yourself and to just let the magic flow through you as you live your life, you can subscribe at Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, online at newchurchnewway.org, or wherever you do the podcast listening. Thanks for listening to New Way. Our producer is the fabulous Martha Sanders. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. Catch you next time.